Hello, Risen Hope. It is good to see you. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm JT Kimball, and it's my pleasure to be sharing God's Word with you today. Um, I'll be opening up a series we're calling Death, Where is Your Sting? as we talk about the resurrection, and God willing, Nikki will be speaking next week, and Jeremy will be speaking the week after that. But before we get started and get into those details, uh, let's pray. Lord in heaven, you are so good and so amazing. I pray that you would just soften our hearts, help us focus on you, help us look to you, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we just learn to love you more, and that today that you would help me get out of the way and it would be your word that shines forth and we could just know more deeply the joy, the peace, and the comfort that is only found in you. In your son's name we ask. So Jesus died for your sins. That's probably something that you've heard before. You've heard that phrase before. But what if I told you that I didn't always like saying that phrase? And that's not because the phrase is untrue. Rather, the phrase is incomplete. Jesus did not just die for our sins. Jesus left heaven descending to earth to become a man. He lived a perfect and a God-pleasing life. He willingly died on the cross, and then he was resurrected and ascended. If you take away any one of those steps, the others actually lose their importance. So Jesus did die for our sins, and it's amazingly true, gloriously true. But that alone is not sufficient. It doesn't stand in isolation. And this is why we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating the necessary and the amazing resurrection of our Savior. So why was the resurrection necessary? If you're like me, and not all of you are, I understand that, but for me, in my faith walk, I found that the importance of the cross was preached to me early and often, and I understood it, and I could tell people why Jesus had to die for my sins. The necessity of the resurrection was not impressed upon me nearly as often. And so I found a couple years ago, um, don't remember when, but I remember several years ago, I realized while I could explain why Jesus needed to be crucified, I couldn't really articulate why he had to be resurrected. Like, how is that a core part of my faith? And so, just in case that you find yourself in the same situation, I want to open today's message with just a brief overview of why the resurrection is, is essential and why it's an important part of our Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, and we're going to be spending a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 over the next few weeks, uh, Paul provides a brilliant case for and an overview of the resurrection. As part of that case, there's a very strongly worded sentence at verse 17 where he writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That, our faith is worthless. That is a really strong statement to say that our faith is worthless if Jesus had not been raised. Jesus can live a perfect life, die on the cross, fulfill prophecy, but if he is not raised, Paul is saying that there is no point, there's no value to this faith in Christ. And why is that? Because Jesus' sacrifice is all about reconciling us to the Father in heaven, and to have eternal life with him, we must overcome death. So if Jesus was not raised from the dead, one, he would have been just like all the other supposed messiahs at the time period, their movement ended at death. One example is a man named Athrongus. He was a Jewish man 
who, was, who led an armed rebellion against the Romans around the time that Jesus was a young boy. The rebellion lasted for nearly two years, killed many, many Roman soldiers, and Athrongus even claimed and was given the title King of the Jews by some of his followers. He was crowned with a diadem, everything that kind of came with all the trappings of supposedly being a Messiah. Then Athrongus was killed, his rebellion was over, and I'm presuming that most of you don't know who he is because his movement ended a death. <laughs> Contrast that with Jesus, whose movement did not end with death, but instead death was just one step of God's wondrous plan. His movement still continues today, which is why all of us are here or are watching online. Second, if Christ was not raised, the power of the Holy Spirit would not have been made known to us and given to us. Um, I like uh, Romans 8.11, the verse says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit was the power by which Jesus was raised from the grave. And Jesus had to ascend to heaven in order to send the Holy Spirit to us. He tells us that in John 16. He says, it's going to be better for you that I leave because another one, the counselor, the helper, the Holy Spirit is coming, which is just a wild statement that's better that Jesus leaves. But that's all throughout John 16. Jesus makes several references to this throughout 14 through 16 of John. And now, because of that power that is now within us, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, we're also assured of our salvation. And the third thing is that if Jesus was not resurrected, there would have been no power in his death. In being raised from the dead, Jesus defeated death, showing that his sacrifice would be sufficient to allow us to have life everlasting with our Father in heaven. 2 Timothy 1 tells us that Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So simply, the resurrection is essential because one, Jesus' mission did not end at death like that of the false messiahs. Two, he had to resurrect and ascend so that he could send the Holy Spirit to us. And three, it gave power to his sacrifice on the cross, showing that he had overcome death, which allows us to do the same. By God's grace, that brief introduction um, to the resurrection hopefully has been helpful to you all. Jesus' death on the cross is supremely important. But as I said, it does not stand in isolation. To understand what it means to be a Christian means that we must understand why the resurrection is essential. And perhaps you want more of an explanation on the resurrection or you have some questions. Uh, I have some really good news for you. The next three weeks are going to be all about it. So, but if that doesn't answer your questions, please feel free to reach out to myself or Nikki or Jeremy. And I think we'd be more than happy to talk, about, talk to you about it. As I mentioned, the next three weeks are going to be in a series called Death, Where is Your Victory? In that series, we'll be working our way through 1 Corinthians 15. So if you can take a moment, you can open your Bibles, open your phone, um, look over your neighbor's shoulder, whatever is the easiest way for you to do this, to see 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're actually going to be working through this chapter backwards. I'm starting at the end of the chapter today. Nikki's going next week with a set of verses before mine, and Jeremy's finishing up in the middle of the chapter. And the reason we're going through the chapter backwards is actually because when Paul lays out the argument, he does so in reverse chronological order. So for us to share this message with you chronologically, we're actually going backwards through the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. So now let's turn to our primary text, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Starting at verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. There are three realities of the resurrection that Paul explains here, and we're going to be walking through them today. The first reality is that we are promised immortality with our Father in heaven. The second is that death has been defeated forever. And the third is that our lives and what we do with them matters eternally. In the passage, we see that Paul's writing about the last day. When the trumpet sounds, he describes it as our mortal bodies putting on immortality, our per the perishable bodies putting on the imperishable. This is the first reality of the resurrection, that we are given eternal life, immortality with God. And so how do we acquire this? Paul gives us a clue in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God, and how then is it inherited? In the book of Matthew, Jesus spends a lot of time he's speaking extensively about God's kingdom, or as he calls it, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, over half of the chapters in Matthew contain references, parables, or explanations about the kingdom of heaven. From reading through all these references from Jesus, you learn that the kingdom of heaven is both present now and is a coming promise. Both of those things are true. And so a kingdom is all the people, places, and things that a king is ruler over. So the kingdom of God would then be everything that he is ruler of. And as you, know, as you may have learned as an adult or in Sunday school, you ask, what's God, what's God in charge of? Everything. God's ruler over all. So his kingdom is everything. But this earth is part of that kingdom. And you may be asking the logical question, this earth's kind of a messed up place. So how can it be part of his kingdom? Jesus acknowledges that this is true in Matthew chapter 13. Um, and if you, you can turn there if you'd like to, the verses 37 through 43, he's explaining the parable of the sower and the seed to his disciples. It reads, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there are weeds, or unbelievers, in God's kingdom right now. And they've been put there by the devil. 
However, we see that at the end of the age, they are removed and the righteous are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom. That is our coming promise. The believer's inheritance is this new kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, where there will be no more tears and no more pain. So how do we know that this kingdom, this new heaven, this new earth, is the believer's inheritance? The Bible tells us that God's children inherit this kingdom. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 17, we learn that for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. And because Jesus is resurrected, he is keeping his promise to prepare a place for us in his kingdom forever. Jesus explains this to us in verses 1 through 3 of John chapter 14. He tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this is the first reality of the resurrection that Paul explains here, that we are promised eternal life through Jesus, who is preparing a place for us. The second reality of the resurrection that Paul unpacks here is that death has been defeated forever. Let's read again from 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll be starting at the latter half of verse 54, and we'll be going through verse 57. And I realize I probably haven't been getting enough time to flip to that in your Bible, so I'll pause a few seconds in case you need to go there. Paul writes, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, which he's quoting from Isaiah 25. And then he goes on to quote from Hosea 13, saying, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then now Paul continues, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When I read this, there was actually one sentence in particular that stuck with me. And it was the sentence that said, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And I think a natural question when you read that is, what does this mean, Paul? How is that comforting? Why did you write this? And how did Christ give us victory there? You know, the phrasing of the power of sin is the law is especially kind of strange and hard to wrap your head around. It's not immediately obvious what Paul means by this. So let's look at that sentence and start at the first part of it and sort of un unpack it. The first part of that sentence says, the sting of death is sin. This part's a little bit more straightforward. We see that on the day the trumpet sounds and we are made to be imperishable, death is going to have no sting. And death's sting is sin. So why will it have no sting? Two reasons. One is because Jesus was a perfect and a pleasing sacrifice, atoning for our transgressions, which means the sin has been paid for and will not be counted against us. Hebrews 9 verses 12 through 14 explain this wonderfully. It says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And the second reason death will have no sting is because Jesus rose from the grave. And it shows that physical death had no power over him and thus will have no power over us. Romans 8.11, quoting the verse I, spoke, I, um, I mentioned earlier, it says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. This is why death will have no sting and no power over us. Because Jesus washed away the sins that we committed and he rose from the dead. Which then brings us to the second half of the sins. Why would Paul write, the power of the sin is law? Oh, sorry, the power of sin is the law. And why does he feel it's important to mention this? Paul is revealing, or referring to the power of the law to reveal sin and also how Satan likes to use the law to attempt to condemn us. In Romans 5, uh, verse 13, Paul writes about the law revealing sin. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So God's law is meant for righteousness. It is to teach us what is good and what is right. It reveals and it counts our sin. However, Satan likes to twist it and use the law to condemn us. He might say, look at where you are following the rules to make you feel guilty. Or he might cause you to ask yourself, how can I even call myself a Christian? Those are not the quest. That's not a question that the Holy Spirit would prompt you to ask. We know that our justification is not one of the law, but it is through Christ. In Romans uh, chapter 7, Paul has a nice se um, section, uh, verses 4 through 6, where our relationship with the law is explained. He writes, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. So it's not that the law is inherently evil in any way. It's that we are held captive by it. Christ's death and resurrection has completely defeated sin and has released us from the law. As it's written here from Paul, we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This means that the law, and therefore sin, and therefore death, can no longer have any power over us. We are not enslaved to the law, but we have committed our lives to Christ Jesus and been given his spirit to guide us. So when Paul writes to us that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, it's to let us know that we are free in Christ Jesus. And Paul has a way of using more words and different words than I would use, but he is thorough and this is God-breathed and he's trying to let us know really, like, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, and you are free from all of that because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. As, he, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. We are free from needing to follow a set of rules or to be legalistic in order to be holy. And like, hallelujah, it's amazing. Death has been defeated, and we have victory over death, sin, and the law through our Lord Jesus Christ. The final reality that Paul explains here about the resurrection is one of how we live our lives, namely that our actions are eternally meaningful. We just heard about how we've been released from the law, works-based righteousness, or legalism, but that is not an exemption from doing good works. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's an exhortation to do good works. If you look at the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to us saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the sentence starts with a therefore. And that therefore is a very important word because it's saying that all that Paul has explained this entire chapter about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, it's all leading up to a therefore. And that therefore says we are to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, and know that our labor is not in vain. Paul spent 57 verses explaining the deep, eternal importance of the resurrection. He gets really theological. But how does he finish it up before he changes subjects and goes to the next chapter? With an exhortation to do good works because our actions matter eternally. And so why is Paul wrapping up this deep theological treatise on the resurrection with this particular exhortation? Um, Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century British preacher who was far more eloquent than I am, and he sums it up very well. I was gonna, I'm going to quote something from one of his commentaries here. About this verse, he writes, In this chapter, Paul dealt with the fact of the resurrection, and he argued in defense of it. Yet he closes with these words, this is a lesson for us. Let us never think that we have learned a doctrine until we have seen its fruit in our lives. So Paul lists out three aspects of the fruit of the reality of the resurrection. But we can never have that fruit unless we understand the doctrine. And we can't think we've understood the doctrine unless we have that fruit. The two are intertwined. You cannot separate them. This fruit will be ever-present in our lives if we truly understand the resurrection and its meaning. And so the first thing that Paul lists there is that we are steadfast and that we are immovable. Our life, as I think all of you are aware, is full of trials and hardship. To, to live on this earth is to experience suffering. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 4. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> Don't be surprised. It's not strange to be tempted, to be frustrated, to be downtrodden. That is something we are to expect in this life. But because of the resurrection, we have something to cling to. We have an everlasting hope and joy. And that's because we have our hope and joy that's anchored in something that is much greater than this life. Colossians 2 tells us, that therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we are rooted in Christ, all of Christ, his deity, his death, his resurrection. Because he is the anchor of our souls, 
We are not tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves of this life. We are steadfast and we are immovable because we are holding on to Christ and he is the center of all that we do. Paul spent 57 straight verses on this topic so that we, all believers, could have supreme confidence in whom we trust, and that is Jesus. And because the trials of this life will not shake you, the fruit of your faith will always be evident in your life. Paul exhorts the Corinthian church to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not sometimes, but always. And not a little bit, but abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord. So a question could be is, what is the work of the Lord? That maybe wasn't a question that came to your mind, but it's one of my favorite questions, so it's the one I asked here. Because, and I love that question because I find that the Bible always gives me an answer when I ask that question. And oftentimes it is nuanced and convicting in a brand new way that I hadn't experienced before when I asked, asked that question. It can probably be most, however, um, what the work of the Lord is can probably be most succinctly summed up by Jesus when he tells us what the greatest commands are. He says they are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Something that I have found to be preciously true is that if I earnestly and regularly read my Bible, my heart changes and my actions change. Loving my neighbor is not a chore, it's exhilarating. It's life-giving. Spending time with God is not something that I sort of have to carve out of my life. It's actually something I'm looking forward to all day. Can't wait to get off work so I can do this. I'm not, so I'm not going to list out everything that is a good work. God already God gave us this so we can see what, what good works are and how to live our life. Um, instead, I'm just going to ask that you read your Bible, and when you read it, ask yourself the question, how is my life going to be different because of what I've read today. Because if we ask that question, we will be given an answer, and the answer will be something that causes us, that involves us loving God more and loving others more. Without fail, that will be the case. The third part of verse 58, the third fruit, so to say, of this, is that knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And this is both our motivation and our assurance. God values our actions on this earth and eternally. Because Jesus defeated death and he ascended to heaven to prepare a place for us, all that we do here matters. Uh, the Bible verses that we could focus on here are numerous. I'm going to list out a handful of them quickly. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And James 2, 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Over and over and over again, the Bible makes it clear to us that our actions are meaningful and important to God. We are called to deeply love one another 
point people to God, and to glorify him in our actions. Paul talks about this a bit in 1 Corinthians 3, where he says that we can plant the seed or water the seed, but it is God that grows it. All glory to God, and through your actions, your kindness, your outward steadfast faith, you can point people to the gospel, and God can save them and can grow them. And that's an everlasting impact that is eternally meaningful and valuable. On the flip side, though, our actions can have negative consequences. In Matthew 18, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them that it would be better to hang a millstone around their neck and drown in the sea than to cause a fellow believer to sin or to stumble. That's really serious. The consequences of our actions are dire, which is all the more reason to be focused on loving God and loving others in all that we do. I'm going to leave you today with an exhortation. In Romans 12, there's a verse that Paul wrote um, that I love, and I have been probably seven or eight years now really pondering it and just kind of marinating on it in my heart. And I think there's a lot more I have to learn with this. It's just interesting how I keep feeling like there's more to pull out of this verse, which is why it fascinates me and I keep coming back to it. Paul writes that we should outdo one another in showing honor. As far as I know, and I'd love to be corrected, please, if, if I'm wrong here. As far as I know, this is the only time that the Bible tells us believers to be competitive. Generally, competition is about elevating yourself, your team, your group, over another group. Yet, what is, what is Paul asking us to be competitive about? He's like, I want you to be really competitive about humbling yourself to love others and lift them up. If we're going to outdo one another in showing honor, we're going to work so hard, and not in some sort of false humility way, in an earnest, loving way, we're going to try to do better than everyone else around us at loving them, lifting them up, and humbling ourselves, making us small. I don't know if this resonates with you, but it's still something I have a hard time wrapping my head around, which is why I love it so much, because I feel like there's so much more for me to learn from and grow, grow from in that regard. But based on that verse, my exhortation to you is twofold. First, and this is the most important, the bedrock of this whole thing, remember every day that because Christ lived a perfect life, he died a gruesome death for you and was resurrected, you can live forever in our Father's kingdom. Don't let this become boring to you. Don't forget this. It is everything in our life hinges on that fact. It is the most valuable treasure that you could ever sign. And then the second part of the exhortation, which again, you can't do it without the first part, but the second part is, when you read the Bible, I'd like to ask that if you ask yourself the question, how am I being instructed to honor my brother or sister in Christ? And think about what that means for your life and how you live it. What does this text teach me about how to love others, to humbly submit to them, and to care for them? Perhaps even write it down, um, and then you can refer back to it, and pretty soon you're going to have a whole notebook full of like my outdoing one another and showing honor book or something. That would, uh, maybe I should, I don't actually don't do that. That seems pretty cool. I should, I should consider it. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, when you write something down like that, you're more likely to remember it, more likely to take it to heart, and you can refer back to it. If you're like, hey, how, how can I love my brother and sister better? You've got the cliff's notes because you've been asking this question every time you read the Bible. So Jesus' resurrection is a glorious truth that permeates all that we believe and all that we do. 
Because of his resurrection, we have eternal life with God, death has been defeated, and our actions matter forever, eternally. Each week here at Risen Hope, we take part in communion in recognition of Jesus' perfect life and his sacrifice that allows us to be reconciled to God. And because of the resurrection, we know that there's power in that sacrifice. It's meaningful. This is not an empty communion. It is an infinitely valuable communion. If you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus and you long to know him more, please feel free to take communion as we sing the next song. If you didn't grab one, there's little single-use disposable cups with grape juice and crackers in the entryway. You will not be rude if you choose to step up and go grab one. That is totally fine to do. Um, And if you're watching at home, pause the video and get things set up so you can take communions with us during this next song. Christ is risen, and that is something worth celebrating. Let's pray and worship. Father in heaven, There is no one like you. And even though we have your word and we have your body of believers, we are just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding your love, your glory, and the joy and the peace that comes from being with you. And even though we know this life is full of trials and hardships, we know that we find peace even today in you and can look forward to that coming promise this new kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, where there will be no more tears and no more pain because we will be experiencing the joy of being in your presence forever. I pray that you would help us, help Risen Hope, help Kingsgate, help the body of believers here in Kirkland and around the world. Help us remember that peace, joy, love, all that is good is found by clinging to you, to your Son, and letting your Holy Spirit work in us. I pray that we, as a church body, would not be tossed to and fro by the arguments and disagreements with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our family, by any disharmony we have, but we could cling to you. And I pray for those around the world, those who are hurting and suffering. Maybe they're hurting and suffering because of what happened in Atlanta this week, God and they don't know why. Or maybe they're hurting and suffering because they live in China and they're being persecuted. Or they live in Myanmar and they're Rohingya and they're being persecuted. Many people around the world are hurting and suffering, God, and they don't know you. And so I pray that we as believers, we would know you deeply. We would share your love. And I pray for those that don't know you, that they could experience and taste this joy and this peace that we have because of the risen King, because of your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen.